Ideas have consequences, and consequences have ideas. If we don't learn how to think carefully, we will never be able to live rightly. So welcome to Think Through It, a podcast for conversation among friends encouraging one another to think through it. Well, I'm joined today by Mike Cosper. Uh, Mike, I, I kind of feel like, uh, I know I haven't really talked in many years, but we were in this kind of gilded age of of Louisville. I know you're still there, but um, I guess I was just young and and foolish and, you know, in seminary and it just, everything seems so unified and happy. And it was this kind of beautiful time of young, restless and reformed and Southern just had this amazing faculty and um, sojourn at that time was just, I mean, it couldn't do anything wrong. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, I, I never went to sojourn. I mean, I came and visited, I was pastoring a church in Indiana during that time, but and I was in Louisville, 04 to 07. I'm curious, like just your time, that that time of your life, how it framed what you're doing now, um, how it really helped shape who you are as a Christian minister. Yeah, no, I mean, Louisville, Louisville back then, and I think you're right, like more broadly, there was, it was a, it was a fascinating time. It was a great time. Um, churches were being planted. It was kind of the this moment where, you know, generationally, I think, I think we're both sort of somewhere between sort of younger Gen X, older millennial, um, you know, everybody was kind of coming into their own, figuring out who they were, what God was calling them to. And there was this sense of a movement. There was this sense of kind of a renewal movement, um, sort of post, you know, post seeker sensitive church, post boomer church, uh, leadership, um, and yeah, it felt, I mean, it felt incredibly exciting. It felt like a, like, a, like amazing things were happening and, and amazing things were happening in a, in a lot of places and a lot of churches. And, um, so, so yeah, it's still very much, you know, all of those memories, uh, for the most part, all of those memories are very positive memories for me. I'm still at Sojourn. I attend Sojourn East. Um, one of our, uh, was we were a multi-site church. They've all become independent churches now, but I uh, still attend Sojourn East and still very thankful for, for what God's done in our community in spite of having had, you know, a number of years where they were very hard in the midst of that as well. And that's really what I want to talk about today. And, and I'm so grateful for your time just to join us. I, uh, you know, my, my personal story um, grew up in kind of that boomer generation of church my dad started pastoring a small Southern Baptist church when I was in sixth grade and the church just exploded and it was exciting. I mean, that was an exciting time. And, and I would say, you know, for me, that was a very foundational time of my life. I was in student ministry and was being discipled at home. I have amazing parents. Um, but my dad, you know, tragically uh, fell into um, sin. He, he had a, an affair that became a very public thing and had to leave the church. And it was mm. a very hard and disorienting thing to go through as an 18 year old. This kind of all came out right as I was graduating high school and actually discerning my own call to ministry. Now, the net result of that is my dad has been restored to ministry in this beautiful way. And there's this brokenness mm. and humility about the way he does ministry now. And I would say a compassion and a wisdom. My parents' marriage has been restored. And there's, I think, a depth and a beauty to their marriage. So I, I have just seen the hand of God in that. And I'm so grateful for that. I know that's not a lot of people that have gone through something like that do not have that story. 
Um, and so I'm very grateful that God has done that in, in my life. But but from a from an early age, it it created this dynamic where I think I kind of, and I, I wouldn't have been able to say this at the time, but as I reflect back on it, just went looking for God's work in messy situations. Um, and I think this is an, we're in an interesting moment right now uh, where podcasts like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and other documentaries have come out that have, I think, exposed some things that that were not good about the church. I mean, th- these things have already been exposed, but telling, you know, more of the story, um, a little bit deeper of the story, and I think in good ways to help warn the church about uh, some of its vulnerabilities, I would say. Um, but I, but I, as, as I pastor now, and as I am talking to people that were my age back in the age that I was in the Gilded Age of Louisville when everything was bright-eyed and wonderful, um, I, I sense this disillusionment that's growing, this skepticism of leadership. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to make sense of. How do we create? I mean, the big question I want to talk to you about today is how do we lead as as pastors, as journalists? Because mm-hmm. I, I really do believe this is your heart and, and, and something that I appreciated about the rise and fall of Mars Hill is I think you wanted to show that God was at work, even though some of these, you know, very painful things were happening. How do we responsibly do that as as a as pastors, as journalists? How, how do we how do we create what I wrote here in this little question? I think it was just sober mindedness and not always suspicion. Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts, advice on that. I mean, how would you advise me as a pastor? How do you think about that mm-hmm. as a journalist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of there's so many layers to the question because you have, you know, what, okay, what's the role of journalism? What's the role of the pastor? What's the role of the Christian and the congregation? And, um, you know, I do think part of what we're experiencing in in this moment um, and in our time culturally um, is is a is a tremendous amount of suspicion. But I don't think it's unique to the church. I mean, you had you know the Me Too movement a few years ago. Was this was this moment of of uncovering of of these things these these you know uh, some some of whom you know you you had uh, Hollywood producers and things that people kind of knew were moral monsters. I mean, go back and watch Thirty Rock. They were making jokes about how what a monster Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby were you know fifteen years ago. Um, but then there were these sort of beloved figures like whether it was Kevin Spacey or Matt Lauer or others where these things got uncovered that were really really, really gross. And, and I think there's a similar kind of disillusionment, um, inside the entertainment world for that. You had similar things happening inside academia. You had, um, and, and, and so all, all together, I think part of the reason that it is happening is because we, what, what the, the, you know, what, what the internet has done, what social media in particular has done is created this opportunity, not just for people to get their stories out there, but for people to find one another who've had common experiences. Yeah, yeah. And so that was so much, that was so much of what happened with Mars Hill was like this bad, this person had a bad experience. That person had a bad experience. That person had a bad experience. And then someone showed up like a Warren Throckmorton who would be a hub and say, well, I'm going to collect all of these and put them all in one place. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this sort of snowball. Um, Me too was a hashtag that did that. It gathered all those stories in one place and it became, and it became a snowball. So, um, and then I would say in our politics as well, I mean, starting in 2016, 
not just the Donald Trump phenomenon, which was very much a backlash of, of distrust of, of politics and politics as usual and, and politics in general, um, but the Bernie Sanders phenomenon was a, was a populist uh, backlash. And I think much of what you've seen in the politics of the left since then has, has followed suit on all of that. So we're all suspicious. It's yeah. just a, it is a deeply suspicious moment. And I think the church needs to um, it, recognize that. And it's good news in a sense, because it's like, it's not just, oh, what's wrong with the church? You know, it's not just what's, um, what's wrong with journalism or what's wrong with pastors or what's wrong with congregations. It's like, it's like, no, this is a, this is a cultural moment that the church just hasn't been immune to. And I think, um, so, so with that, I think the era where sort of leaders can kind of take for granted that by, by virtue of their position, they're, they're going to automatically receive a certain amount of, um, uh, trust and authority and respect and, you know, all of that. I, I think that's bygone, at least for a time. Um, and at the same time, you know, this is something I've been, been looking into recently. Part of what's interesting about that is go, go read any book on leadership, like go read Maxwell's. I, I just did this for a project the other day. I, I just went and revisited John Maxwell's first book on leadership. And one of the things that he says in, in this book that he wrote to evangelicals on leadership, kind of the first model of this uh, 20, I think it's 30 something years yeah. old now. Um, he's like, positional leadership is the weakest and poorest form of leadership because it's coercive. People are only following you because you have the ability to sort of pressure them or punish them or whatever. Um, yeah. Leadership most, is influence was his big thing, you know, that's right. Not that's a right. title. As you move up the right. sort of, he's got this hierarchy and as you move up the, the hierarchy, it moves away from what can you do for this person or how can you punish this person or what do you offer this person to character, virtue, who you are, how they, why they respect you and all of this. And you look at the qualifications of an elder and, you know, first and second Timothy and Titus, um, those are all character and virtue qualifications for the most part. I mean, there's some competencies too, don't get me wrong, but the vast majority of them are character and virtue based. So I, I think it's an interesting wake up call in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, and I think it was obviously a, a needed wake up call. Um, you know, it is interesting. I mean, obviously we live in an age that is enamored by celebrity, enamored by giftedness. Um, and so I think your point is valid. Just, I mean, there's, there's a bigger thing going on here than just, an exposure in Christendom. Um, and, and I think that it is needed. I, I think, I think where I, you know, have thought a lot about this and just in conversations that I've had with other pastors is, you know, and I, and I had an interesting conversation with Michael Kruger. He wrote bully pulpit. It, it's, it's made the job of the good guys harder. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your interaction with that. And I, and, you know, and one of the things we talked about with Mike, it's not that, you know, the book Bully Pulpit or the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is that's not what's made their job harder. It's it's the the boneheads that, you know, did these things in the first place. Sure. Um, but the exposure to it, um, and and I would like to talk about that question maybe in a context. You know, I, I listened to an interview we did with Russ Moore a few weeks ago. I thought it was really helpful about his new book, but he talked about the double slippery slope, which I thought was mm -hmm. super fascinating. And there's there's yeah. the in, in the context he was talking about it, there was a slippery slope kind of away from Christian orthodoxy toward just a total abandonment of scripture. But on the other side, there's this slippery slope to some sort of secular movement, you know, in, in the case that we were talking about it, or he, that you were talking about with him was misogyny. Um, 
But I think that that's an interesting way to think about it because I, I do think there's like a, an impulse to to rightly tell stories, but then there's this kind of double slippery slope where in, in a sense, journalism can become just as abusive um, as the the problem that you're trying to address. And so what, yeah, I'm curious how you interacted with that. I mean, what you've even learned in the wake of Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I mean, I'm yeah. curious about that, like how, how you've kind of evaluated it. Um, so yeah, help us think through that. And, and I'd like to ask a follow-up question too, but let me, let me. Sure. Yeah, no, no, no. This is, that's a, such an important question. And, I, and it's a fascinating, <clears throat> it's a fascinating thing to, to struggle with. Um, like, well, let me start here. One of the most interesting phenomenon in the production of the podcast was the angry critics that were kind of at the far, I would say sort of far progressive end of the spectrum still Christian or maybe, maybe, maybe beyond, you know, maybe just sort of on the, the fringes of sort of progressive liberal Christianity um, or beyond that and into the non-Christian world who, who wanted to talk about, there, there were two things that were interesting from them. One was they wanted to basically say, no, that it's not enough to call out the abuses of these theological positions. It's not enough to call out hypocrisy. It's not enough to call out because part of what I did in the, in the series was just examine Mark's shifting theology, the way yeah. he kind of shape shifted throughout the history of Mars and continues to do so today. Um, They're like, no, 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 it's the doctrine itself. It's Christianity itself. It's, you know, complementarianism right. itself. It's reformed theology, which, um, you know, for what it's worth, because I also have critics who said, oh, this was just a takedown of complementarianism and reformed theology. It wasn't. I mean, I, 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 I really I really didn't take either of those things down. Um, I attend a church that is reformed and complementarian. <laughs> and um, anyway, um, the point being, one of the things that came out in those critiques was over and over again, people would publish these stories. Someone on social media would tell a story about something that happened. You know, um, uh, I remember one of them that was sort of the most outrageous was like they would have weigh-in nights. You know, husbands would have weigh-in nights with their wives and they would sign a covenant that she would lose yeah, weight. Right, yeah. This was something that was taught in marriage classes, right? Or another one that was published was that there was um, there was a document you had to sign that said that you would never seek counseling from anyone outside of the church. Um, and there were a number of these, like those are two examples, but there were a number of these that were terrible if true and not true, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they never happened. They use outside counselors all the time. If a husband had been doing weigh-in nights with his wife and the pastors had found out about it, at least the vast majority of the pastors that I spoke to would have been like, dude, this is ridiculous. What are you talking about? Um, and nonetheless, like, nonetheless, you can go to Mark's teaching on marriage and sex and there's a lot to critique. It's like the reality, the truth is bad enough. Let right. what's true and bad be bad enough without, without having to go, you know, oh, it's, it's so much worse. We take it other places. And so to me, that's one of the big tests, I think, for journalists who are looking into these stories and, and looking into what's going on in the church. Like you have to have this, this rigorous commitment to the truth because without it, that temptation is so powerful as to go, let's, let's, let's find the most. You can always find a worse, a more scandalous thing, you know, that's right. And scandal right. sells. I mean, that's, that's the, I think that's where the help of the the double slippery slope kind of motif is. Right. It's kind of interesting to think about a lot of things through that motif. Like, 
okay, where can this go this way and where can this go that way? And what am I tempted to? I mean, even even to the point of how do these, how do sometimes these things happen in churches? Well, we all have a propensity toward power and abuse. I mean, that's true of every soul. And if you let mm-hmm. that run rampant, it can, um, they can run. But at the same time, like we live in a world of order and there is such a thing as leadership yeah. and there is such a thing as taking responsibility for things. So, um, yeah. And, and that's where I do think like the way that, that you, you, I think have tried to tell the story. I mean, one of the things that I, wanted to talk to you about is even like the role of CT. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. so personally, I'm kind of like, well, I'm kind of glad CT got to this story before, like the New York times, you know, got to it as much as I like, don't like reading this as much as I would rather live in a world where Avi Zacharias is, you know, a pure man. Um, and I don't like that this story is being told. It's kind of like, I'd rather a brother tell it than an enemy tell it or somebody that, mm-hmm. that, that is skeptical of Christianity in the first place. I mean, do you, do you see that as part of the role of Christianity today? I mean, I'm, mm. I'm curious, like, do y'all, mm-hmm. is that like something you talk about? Is it y'all feel that as a little bit mm-hmm. of a, yeah, let's, let's expose, but let's expose fairly. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious your, how, how you would yeah. interact with that idea. Yeah, it's interesting. We've had, we've had some interesting conversations with, with uh, journalists in mainstream channels about this actually. And one of the things they, you know, commend us for on this kind of coverage is the fact that we understand the evangelical community from the inside in a way that reporting often does not, right? Um, you know, the Driscoll story is a good example of it. The Ravi story is a good example of it. Like there are there are ways in which, especially with Ravi, who was who who was as close to like an evangelical saint in the mind, I think, of his readers and followers and the people who loved him, as as we get. Um, uh, that's what makes it so, and I think that's what made yeah. Driscoll you know, the had a persona that if you said, "Well, that guy's mm-hmm. abusive," you'd be like, "Okay, well, that kind of fits the persona." Ravi had a persona where it's like, "Well, that guy's abusive." Mm-hmm. It's like, no, he's like the most gentle Indian right. man you know. I mean, you know, it's like it's like yeah. he had this like therapist persona that was like, "There's no way that's true," and so mm-hmm. that was so shocking about that story. Anyway, go go right. on. Well, and and he had you know he had this he had this profound eloquence, I think with, with words like his, he channeled his charisma into, um, you know, and, and it wasn't just a persona, but like his persona was he's eloquent. He can, he can dialogue with the best of them at, at the deepest of ideas, you know, all of this. So he, like he sort of embodied for a particular kind of evangelical, he, he embodied kind of the ideal of a representative of the faith to sure. the world. Um, so that's what made those that's what made those scandals so so painful, and and so yeah, I I think I think CT does have a unique role. I think Christian journalism has a unique role in being able to address those things, um, to understand that sunlight is the best disinfectant, like and judgment begins with the house of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that if we're not honest about our stories and about what's happening to them, the tendency is for them to perpetuate. And, and to me, that's kind of the flip side of what I was saying a moment ago about, you know, don't, don't lie about how bad things were at Mars Hill to try to make it worse or to try to get clicks or to, you know, whatever. The flip side of it is don't, don't lie about how bad it wasn't, right? <laughs> like don't, don't diminish how bad it was. Um, 
Because in the instances where spiritual abuse took place, like they truly, they, they really and truly destroyed people's lives. And it was, it was, it was a malignant kind of mm-hmm. destruction. It was a, um, it was, it was an unhinged kind of thing. <clears throat> and I think for, for certain leaders, it was like you, you bought into this sort of loyalty test. And so you were, you were in on it. Um, and for a lot of leaders though, and probably the majority of leaders, it was something you cringed at. You looked the other way and you calculated as kind of the cost of doing business because Mark's this prophet. Mark is our, you know, our Martin Luther right. and so on and so forth. You made these excuses. Well, in some it. of that, I mean, it, it's you, if it's the only context that you know, and the Lord mm-hmm. has worked in a powerful way in your life through that ministry, it's hard to discern those things. It's, it's, it, yeah. to your point, like, it's like, well, this is just the way it is. Um, yeah. I, I, okay. You just talked about journalism and its role in these kind of things. I, I am kind of curious, like the role of pastors and churches, you know, back to my own kind of personal story, you know, when everything happened with my dad, I, I didn't feel like the church that we were a part of knew how to restore, tried really. It was their kind of was like, well, let him be the scapegoat and let's just distance ourselves from this. And for a while I kind of was bitter. I mean, I, I was disappointed in that church for that kind of impulse. But then I, as I thought about it more, I think maybe as I even became a pastor myself, it's like, well, wait, actually like it was his role to maybe prepare them to restore the church, uh, to restore, mm-hmm. you know, a fallen person. But, you know, that impulse is kind of hard to do because it admits, well, there might need to be a time where somebody is restored. Um, um, yeah. And I just think like how difficult it is to think about those things as a pastor, even when everything's successful, you want to say everything's great. You want people to obviously believe in the church and believe in the organization uh, and present yourself well. Um, but again, I think that can create, if something does bad does happen, a great disillusionment or great damage on the other side. So I'd be curious, do you have any advice to pastors? Like, how do we do this? I mean, these aren't hmm. national stories a lot of the time. I mean, obviously, Ravi, Driscoll, whatever, these are big, big stories, but these kinds of things are happening. And whether it, it doesn't have to be systematic abuse, it could just be a, you know, a pastor that falls or somebody that, you know, messes mm-hmm. up. How, how do we how do we create a culture um, that doesn't create this hyper-skeptical culture, mm-hmm. but to create a sober-minded culture that that I think can guard against a, a future disillusionment. Mm-hmm. Man, it's such a good question. I, 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 um, I'll, I mean, the short answer from my end is I'm not really sure. Cause I think we're trying to figure this out. Yeah. I mean, it's a, cause it is a, it is a different kind of moment. I, I think for starters, you have to come back to like the nature of authority, right? Um, how does authority really work? Um, if we, if we think of authority as, you know, if we think of authority as primary, some primarily something that's sort of, if, if so, okay, let me back up. Cause what I'll, what you'll often read when you, when you listen to the people talk about the nature of spiritual authority. Um, and this is such a critical question for church abuse. You, people think of spiritual authority as a top down reality. God is authoritative. I mean, this is like the Gothard phenomenon. Right, you yeah. see the hierarchies yeah. of authority. The umbrella. God to yeah, this, yeah, yeah. To this. yeah, exactly. And um, the problem with that is, and and I'm not saying that there isn't a, a, a theological truth in it. Right. That's what makes problem, it so hard is like right. authority 
structures do kind of exist, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, yeah. The The problem with it is that if, if, if people are invited into that, understanding it in that sort of pure hierarchical way, um, what you do is you eliminate their sense of freedom. Like people are not choosing, people are not trusting, there's no consent, right? Right. Um, and so... So what you don't actually have, in reality, what you don't actually have is you, you don't actually have a, a sense of leader, follower, trust, all of that. Um, you, have a, you have a system that's kind of set up for coercion. Right. Uh, because the, the person who's in the position of authority now holds the keys to church discipline and all of the things that can become very unpleasant with all of that. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a, a sort of theological reality at work there in terms of why God's put someone into that position to lead and to do those things. But what I think pastors need to, to be thinking about and, and understand is that the most powerful kinds of authority are the authority that are given to you by the people you're trying to lead, right? Um, to me, the best example of this is, like, is the, the series Band of Brothers, uh, the HBO series about Easy Company in World War II. Right. Um, early on in the series, you, you get the David Schwimmer character, Captain Sobel, this very unpleasant, demanding, authoritarian kind of leader, um, who really has, who really has a, a, a kind of contempt for the people underneath him. And all he has to go on is his positional authority. Um, nobody wants to do anything that he says. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to follow him anywhere. And then the contrast is Dick Winters, who comes up through Easy Company, and he's always the first one to put himself in harm's way. He's always the, you know, um, and of course, they'll, those guys would follow him anywhere and, and go anywhere with him. And the reason, the reason they're willing to do that is, is uh, he's earned that kind of trust. He's earned that kind of, um, he's earned that consent. So I think, I think there's a tension between those two realities. There's a tension between this, the sort of spiritual reality that as, as a pastor and a teacher, God has put you into a position to speak with a certain kind of uh, authority in terms of the word, in terms of pastoring the church, in terms of helping people be discerning about what um, God is, might be saying or doing in their lives. And then by contrast, you got to recognize that people aren't actually going to follow you if they don't trust you and don't believe you love them. Well, and, um, and this is why I wanted I to have, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think that second piece is, is one of the ones that we, we take too much for granted and, and with it, like our structures inhibit it right. oftentimes yeah. because of the tendency to have distance between pastors and people. And I think that one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation, when I first imagined this conversation, I was like, this is a good conversation about Christian leadership. And then it was like, well, actually, this is a good conversation about Christian community. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, wait a second. This is actually a conversation about the nature of the gospel itself. Like, if we can't understand how God has authority over us, I mean, you know, in a sense, we're, we're modeling that. And it is an authority that God certainly has, but it the, the way that we understand it is the way that he demonstrates his love toward us. Uh, the way mm -hmm. that he enters into the story with us, the way that he suffers with us and endures the miseries of this life. Like that's how we understand the the greatness of the authority of God. Not only is he a great creator who obviously right. has authority over us, he is this greater gracious redeemer. Um, and so that is what leads us obviously to a true knowledge of the living God. 
Um, and so on one side, I think there's like an authority. If we, we, we can get authority wrong and that can become abusive. It can be false. But on the other side, we can get forgiveness wrong and love wrong. And, and right. where someone does fall, there's, there's total skepticism. There's no forgiveness. They have to suffer. There's no restoration. You can't lead again. I mean, those kinds of things. And yeah. so really all of this is really reflective of the very nature of the gospel. And we live in an age, I mean, to some of your earlier comments, I think we live in an age that, you know, has the ethic of forgiveness is getting thrown out because, well, for a forgiveness culture allows for abuse, um, which that can be true. But at the same time, you know, a, uh, um, you know, a culture with no forgiveness, that's, that's not Christian or it's a culture that'll destroy itself. Right, exactly. And so you can't have community. You can't have community at all if you don't have forgiveness, because we're always going to be messing up. We're always going to be hurting one another. Um, you certainly can't have leadership and you really, and obviously you can't even have the gospel. And so I think this is an important conversation because I think that the, if we get this wrong, there's more at stake than just pastor's jobs being harder. I think the yeah. nature of Christian community um, and the way that we view one another and even the way that we view God um, is at stake here. I don't know. I would say one of the things that's interesting about it as well is, um, well, actually, you know, just this last week, there was kind of a, a blow up online over a clip of J.D. Greer that got posted online where J.D. was yeah, I saw it. calling out his congregation. And you are the problem. Yeah, 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 because they're people, people are coming in late. They're leaving early. There's this sense, you know, and and it just blew up and, and people were blowing up. They were calling it abusive and they were talking about the hypocrisy of you know, look, you've got this massive production right, right. and you're yelling at your people not to treat it like a production and all of this. And to me, this illustrates perfectly the sort of, this sort of authority trust dynamic, which is that the vast majority of people that I saw criticizing the video had absolutely nothing to do with JD's church. Right. I think the people who attended JD's church and people who know him and have seen the, the slings and arrows that he endured inside the SBC fighting you know, on in the midst of the abuse scandal, the way he has, uh, you know, earned a certain kind of trust and authority inside the church and all of that, they're looking at this and they're hearing it from a very, very different place. Not to say there aren't people who didn't like it, weren't, were, were ruffled by it or whatever. That's, that's fine. But I think the vast majority of them heard it from a very, very different place because they have a different kind of relationship with JD. The mistake was, put that thing online right. where people who had no context for that kind of trust um, can then take that out of its context and interpret it through the lens of the rise and fall of Mars Hill and the Hill song and all these other kind of things and go, Oh, here we go. You know, just another pastor screaming, how dare you at his, at his church. And, um, and so it just struck, struck me as very, very, very different, but it also struck me as, you know, a great, a great example of, dude, understand context. Like you take that thing and you put it online. You, you invited the world, <laughs> you invited the world. That's right. Yeah. Boy, did you, uh, boy, did you experience it? And that's, you know, I mean, again, you just want to talk about a new environment that we're maneuvering as mm -hmm. pastors. I mean, obviously there's some good to having Instagram preaching clips and people can sure, see that and sure. be encouraged yeah. by that. But, uh, there's also, you know, a risk. There's also another side to that. Mm -hmm. And, and even how we understand pastoral ministry in that context of mm -hmm. what is my responsibility to my people or to the people. Um, so, I mean, all these are, I, they're just such pertinent things for the church to 
I mean, the name of this podcast is Think Through It. I mean, you know, these are pertinent things for us to think through and uh, to think Mm -hmm. deeply about. And and I just want to say I appreciate the work that you do helping us to think through these things. Um, And I really do think that, you know, CT has an important voice here and uh, having a journalism arm that, um, you know, is of brothers um, is uh, I think just so helpful for, for the church. W- what are you working on right now, Mike? I know you've got the bulletin, which I've, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a weekly listener, but I listen regularly and I, it's always, whenever I do listen, it's super helpful. I know your podcast cultivated. I, I know you're seeing, overseeing mm-hmm. a slew. You've got a whole stable of podcasts. Uh, mm-hmm. What, anything coming down the pike that um, we should be looking forward to? Yeah, we've got a podcast uh, in production right now. Um, looking, um, what I what I can say for now is that it's a podcast trying to understand how we got where we are in our in our evangelical moment, um, and it'll be looking at um, a couple of sort of important historic inflection points to to understand that. And then actually have a book coming uh, right after the first of the year this coming year. It's it's sort of a little. Um, it's it's sort of a parallel of a of a of a personal memoir and looking at my story through the lens, particularly of of Peter and um, kind of his encounter with disillusionment and and doubt um, uh, at the cross. And so mm-hmm. that book's called Land of My Sojourn. It'll be here in the right after the first of the year. Well, I I, I just want to encourage you to to keep helping us to see uh, the beauty of God amidst. Uh, a broken world that we long for it to be redeemed. And while it groans and longs for redemption, um, you know, I pray that we would just keep looking for, to the beauty of Jesus and seeing it fully. So thanks for your help in, um, in helping us to do that and uh, grateful for your ministry. And thanks for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. For Mike Cosper, I'm Jason Dees, encouraging you to think through it. Thanks for listening to Think Through It. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com.